My parents would never have let me as a seven-year-old stay up until 10 p.m. So had they, and not a babysitter, been watching me and my younger brother that Friday night in September 1983, I would never have had the chance to create my first lasting baseball memory. I would have been in bed long before the Chicago White Sox finished off an 11-0 demolition of the then California Angels. And in my first lasting baseball experience, the White Sox had their own franchise first. Three hitters, Carlton Pudge Fisk, Tom Wimpy Pashorek, and Greg the Bull Luzinski hit back-to-back-to-back home runs. I don't remember any particular specifics of the game, but I've had some time recently, now three and a half decades later, to try to imagine what caught the eyes and ears of seven-year-old me. I'm thinking I love the infectious enthusiasm of play-by-play man Don Drysdale and game analyst Ken Hawk Harrelson on WFLD Channel 32 in Chicago. Barrett, here's a drive to left. Fisk on the one-strike pitch hits it out of here. And it's all tied at one. There were also the fireworks, shitting off after every White Sox home run and victory, and the unabashed joy the team seemed to take in playing and winning together. And what allowed me to enjoy the game of baseball itself was that I already knew most of the rules from playing kickball in gym class, and because rather than watch cartoons, I would instead rapidly watch famed baseball announcer Mel Allen on Saturday mornings. Count on us to sum up all the numbers for you all on This Week in Baseball. Allen would take me through the week's best baseball highlights. I would marvel at the athleticism and how easily I could follow the storylines. And the show's theme, Jet Set, written by former Manford Mann guitarist Mike Vickers, who celebrates his 80th birthday today, became the musical backdrop to my formative baseball education. Even as a seven-year-old, I already had an innate understanding of baseball's rules and strategies. That knowledge made up for the fact that, throughout my childhood and well into adulthood, before I took up running in earnest in my early 30s, I was, at best, average at every sport I tried. My sports aptitude also helped raise my social profile in elementary school because, even then, kids know what makes other kids popular. And in my school, the most popular boys were also the best athletes. It also helped that, like the rest of my second-grade classmates, I loved the White Sox. I was absolutely mesmerized by this particular team, each of whom, it seemed, had a memorable nickname, tick, or look. Fisk, who wore jersey number 72, a number most frequently handed out on the rare occasions it is, to spring training attendees with absolutely no shot at making the major league squad. And Fisk would tug at the left sleeves of his t-shirt and jersey while pointing his bat at the pitcher. When he was done, he'd sweep the bat back through the strike zone before settling it on his right shoulder to await the pitch. Or Luzinski, whose own manager, Tony Larusa, said he'd been perceived as washed up at age 32. A burly bearded guy with huge eyeglasses, who looked more likely to be found at a corner bar on the south side and crushing mammoth home runs out of Comiskey Park. The White Sox were Chicago's team in 1983, everyone on board with the distinctly Chicago motto of winning ugly. A 
group of rookies, castoffs, and players who are either past their prime or in the midst of a very short one. All incredibly talented, but for most of the squad, either through bad luck or injury, their careers were never the same after hitting their apex in 1983. Fortunately though, for all of them, the absolute peak of their major league careers came at the same time, creating the most memorable White Sox season in nearly a quarter century. Steam's nah nah, hey hey, kiss him goodbye started as a team tradition in 1977 when organist Nancy Faust played it as a sort of dismissive goodbye wave to opposing teams after the White Sox won. In 1983, WBBM 96.3 FM in Chicago refashioned the song with new lyrics and a new title, Winning Ugly, and it became a citywide sensation in Chicago during the summer and fall of 1983. Other than Fisk, then 35, and a 24-year-old Harold Baines, both of whom have been inducted into the Hall of Fame, the rest of the team has most likely been forgotten by all but the most die-hard Chicago baseball fans of that era. The pitching staff of Lamar Hoyt, Floyd Bannister, Richard Dotson, and Britt Burns and a lineup that included Julio Cruz, Scott Fletcher, Vance and Rudy Law, and Chicago's favorite, the power-hitting 1983 AL Rookie of the Year, Ron Kittle, who received this reception at Comiskey Park when he was introduced before the 1983 All-Star Game. Representing the Chicago White Sox. Kittle later said in an interview that his fellow All-Star Game teammates, who included several future Hall of Famers, told him they never heard louder cheers for any other player's pregame introduction. I was, as they say, a late adapter, not jumping on the White Sox bandwagon for another two months after the All-Star break, but I became as big a White Sox fan as anyone else in my second grade class. In the first season of Wrecking the Toy Department, I used this form to talk about politics, civics, and social issues through the lens of sports. Because, as I would remind my listeners, we wouldn't just stick to sports because we didn't have the privilege of doing so. But during this current global coronavirus pandemic, it would be an enormous privilege to have the distraction of sports, to be able to talk, argue, and debate the meaning of actual sporting events. So I'm devoting this podcast's second season to the sporting events that are the most memorable and meaningful to me. Starting here with the very first game I remember watching, the White Sox beating the Angels in September 1983, and the beginning of what remains a lifelong love of the game. When the Sox weren't on TV, I'd go to the park or simply into my backyard to see if I could hit a ball as high and as far as Kittle and Luzinski. It wasn't until a few years later that I actually got to go to a game at Comiskey Park, and I still remember how much fun it was, especially when someone hit one out. That's when the fireworks would be shot off from the exploding scoreboard. Back in the 1980s, that was tremendously high-tech, and it's what helped make Comiskey Park a truly one-of-a-kind baseball stadium. I never knew until I recently read a 1990 New York Times article written by architectural critic Paul Goldberger that the old Comiskey Park on Chicago's south side was built in 1910, four years before its north side counterpart, Wrigley Field. Comiskey Park was, as Goldberger wrote, the rougher, tougher version of Chicago, less pretty to look at, but much more convincingly the real thing. 
while he wrote that the ballpark had no mystique. In my opinion, he sold it way short. Rather than outfield bleachers, the stands were double-decked, held up by old pillars and facades that were ugly to the core. Yet somehow, according to Goldberger, they blocked out only a few views and had, quote, the marvelous effect of framing the view to the field, focusing it, and heightening the intensity, end quote. Then, rising up out of that sea of dark green is what I remember most about the stadium, an enormous exploding scoreboard with fireworks stacks that looked like psychedelic pinwheel lollipop towers, pink and yellow and green and red, rising into the Chicago night. And they'd shoot fireworks over the Chicago skyline after every Sox home run and victory. Through the first 96 games of the 1983 season, the Sox were a mediocre 49-47. and From there, though, they started winning. A lot. 50 of their final 66 games. As they started that tear shortly after the All-Star break, then-Texas Rangers manager Doug Rader, who'd later become a White Sox coach, told reporters the White Sox, quote, weren't playing well, they're winning ugly, unquote. Rather than bristle at the insult, the team made the phrase winning ugly their rallying cry. And on September 17th, eight days after I watched my first White Sox game, they clinched the American League West title. And that is into shallow center. It's just for the run. Cruz tags. Here's the catch. Here comes the throw. Here comes Cruz. Western champions in the American League. And you think there aren't some happy people on the field. Harold Bain with the game-winning RBI. The White Sox win it 4-3. Pandemonium here at Comiskey Park. Watching the highlights now, what sticks out to me most is the fans pouring out of the stands and onto the field to celebrate. What a different world we lived in then. A couple weeks later, the White Sox headed to Baltimore to take on the Orioles, their first trip to the playoffs since 1959. Live from Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, Maryland, the American League Championship Series, the Western Division champion Chicago White Sox versus the Eastern Division champion Baltimore Orioles. And again, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Don Drysdale along with Ken Harrelson, and happy that you've joined us this afternoon. Now 3-1 to Pachorek with Lezinski on deck. Hit hard, and Cruz has it short, hop him and get by. Law is going to score as Ripken picks it up on the outfield grass. And it's 1-0 Chicago. And the chant of Eddie, Eddie from the Memorial Stadium crowd. Murray, of course, is a switch hitter. So the percentage is not involved in switching pitchers. This undoubtedly will be Hoyt's last batter. He retires him, and he wins it. If he loses him... Then Lowenstein, a left-handed hitter, is next. Back to Hoyt through his legs. Fletcher picks it up, steps on second, and it's over. Chicago claims game one, two to one. Those highlights courtesy of WFLD in Chicago and NBC. After Lamar Hoyt threw a complete game to take the opener for the Sox, I and many of my newly minted White Sox fan friends thought they'd be heading to the World Series. But... It was not to be. Chicago scored just one run total in the series' final three games, and it was the Orioles, not the White Sox, who went on to play and eventually beat the Philadelphia Phillies in the World Series. The White Sox would not return to the playoffs again for another decade, and it would be 12 years after that, in 2005, 
that they would return to the World Series. That would be one of the greatest years ever for the most unsung of the Chicago area teams, the White Sox and the University of Illinois men's basketball team. My memories of the 05 Shy Sox and Fighting Illini will be featured on the next episode of my favorite sports experiences of my lifetime. Until then, thank you for joining me on this trip down memory lane. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, produced, voiced, and edited by me, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.